welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. My name's Danny. And my name's Victoria. The Oscars on Sunday evening mark the end of the film award season and we've come to the conclusion that the best films started their lives as books. Gone with the Wind, The Science of the Lambs, Fight Club, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. We could go on and on. Here at Penguin, we just love watching our stories unfold in front of our eyes on the silver screen. And this year, we've seen quite a few movie adaptations. So we were quite surprised that Penguin didn't get an invitation to walk down the red carpet. Or reed carpet. <laughs> we certainly would have clapped our flippers together when 12 Years a Slave won Best Picture. But as we sadly weren't present, we've chosen to celebrate with this humble podcast instead. So first up, we were lucky enough to get hold of some interviews with the cast of the film The Invisible Woman, based on the book of the same name by Claire Tomalin. It is the story of someone who almost wasn't there, who vanished into thin air. Her names, dates, family and experiences very nearly disappeared from the record for good. And it was Claire Tomalin's biography of the life of Nellie Turnan and Charles Dickens that not only returned the neglected actress to her rightful place in history, but provided a compelling and truthful portrait of the great Victorian novelist. So first up, we've got Tom Hollander, who plays Wilkie Collins, on what he really thinks this story is about. The story is about a middle-aged man falling in love with a, a young woman and how difficult that is in the, the period, uh, how difficult it is for his marriage and really what it is for her, because actually the story is, is about Ellen Turnan's experience. I think we'll have to wait and see because, uh, you know, how the thing is put together is obviously significant. But as I'm sure you know, the, the film is bookended by Ellen Turnan as an, as a, as a, in middle age, uh, where she's living a new life and she's kept the shame of her affair with Dickens a secret uh, from her husband, who doesn't know about it. And yet she is um, directing one of Dickens' plays uh, as a schoolteacher in later life. And... In doing so, she is able to exert control over her experience in a way that, as a young woman, she can't. She's uh, falling in love with, you know, a man. She's a powerless actress, um, and she's falling in love with a superstar, and she's falling in love with a married man in a time where, you know, that would be shameful in every way, and she's extremely vulnerable. So... Um, it's about men and women in this period uh, as well. Next, the leading lady, Felicity Jones, tells us what drew her to the project. It was um, I, well, a, a combination of um, reading Claire's book. Was, was I just through that process fell in love with Ellen and realised that she was a, a woman of incredible strength and depth and complexity and to have the opportunity to, to play a character of that nature was, was a, um, something I just, just felt very instinctively I, I had to do. And what she thought of Nellie's relationship with Charles Dickens. I think for Nellie it was um, a very strong male figure which she lacked growing up. It was a man who introduced her to a whole world that she, that she wasn't used to um, but it was very it was very difficult for her you know she had had very little in comparison with Dickens and and a, 
for her, she was very proud. She, um, her, the family, they were obsessed with their reputation. They, they wanted to maintain their dignity and, and respect was very, very important to them. So having this very famous, wealthy man take an interest was obviously alluring in many ways, but at the same time, it, it, was, it, was, it was difficult for them because they, they didn't want to be seen by society as, as in any way um, morally loose. Ray finds both directed and starred in The Invisible Woman. Here are his thoughts on the film. The film, to me, as I worked on it, it was the story of how Ellen Turnan became the mistress. It wasn't the story of the life she led as the mistress. I, I, I can't see the drama in it. And once you establish Dickens coming and going, I don't know what you say. Um, but the drama was a young girl becoming, in a particular social world, becoming the mistress of a famous man. Um, and that 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 ended up that con the conclusion of that becoming is the scene in um, Elizabeth Cottage near Windsor or near Slough, which is the first home Dickens set up nearly in, and that that became a very important scene for me. That the the end of our film is the beginning of their life together, with all its weird shadowy compromises, and and for Nelly, um, I think probably a lot of time on her own and on what it was like to play the legendary Charles Dickens. To get the vitality right, um, I was guided very much by a wonderful woman, Joan Washington, who helped me on my performance on Coriolanus, and so I, I have a huge trust in her taste and judgment about where the performance is going, and we worked together very closely on... I mean, she, I think I felt we were completely in tune about who Dickens was, uh, but the energy of Dickens, which I think we see especially in the opening when he's rehearsing in the theatre and the social life of Dickens. Um, to get that, to get that, that love of life, the, the buoyancy in him, and there's a sort of charm to him, I think. Um, I wasn't, I mean, I knew people might not like him. That didn't really worry me. Um, I, I hope that it's people, the best response so far is that people say, I wasn't sure whether I liked him or didn't like him. And I think that's great, because I love it when people are left going, what do I really think of someone not being told? It's that or that, and they have to think. <laughs> the film, The Invisible Woman, is out now in cinemas across the UK. The book is available to buy from all good bookshops. And now from Dickensian London to Prohibition, New York. The Other Typist by Suzanne Rindle is a thrilling tale of the intoxicating and dark side of friendship. Set in 1924 in New York City, the movie starring Keira Knightley is due out this year. In this audiobook extract, we meet the enigmatic and fatally charming Odalie. I unabashedly observed Odalie move through her first day at the precinct. After the lieutenant detective showed her to the coat rack and hung her coat for her, a billowing wrap-over number lilac in color, I believe it was cashmere, though I wasn't close enough to it to be sure. He escorted her in a promenade-like circle around the main office, introducing her by turns to each officer and staff member the two of them encountered along the way. Odalie, I noticed, was polite to all but modified her demeanor ever so slightly to accommodate each. With the sergeant, she was ladylike, formal. With Marie, she was chummy. They laughed loudly together over a few familiar remarks. With Iris, she turned a mirror to Iris's own aloofness, a professional distance I know Iris probably appreciated. 
The lieutenant detective also introduced her to several of the patrolmen before they went out to walk their routes, or beats, as they like to call them, short for beaten paths. I looked on as she extended a flirtatious hand to O'Neill, causing him to color slightly about the cheeks and lower his dark lashes shyly over his sleepy blue eyes. With Harley, she allowed herself to chuckle indulgently at his suggestion they plot to play a prank on the lieutenant detective. The lieutenant detective looked less amused by this prospect. With Arp, she nodded intently as he gestured nervously with his small hands and communicated to her in an instructive tone the importance of typing up a booking sheet with the utmost accuracy. With Graben, she shook hands firmly, looked him in the eye, and did not smile at his lewd jokes, instinctively knowing, somehow, that it was best for her to stake her ground with him straight away. And then before I knew it, the lieutenant detective and Odile were standing in front of my desk. I glanced up from the paperwork I had been proofreading and adjusted my expression to one of polite, detached interest. And last but not least, the lovely Miss Baker, the lieutenant detective said. I winced. I am no deluded fool, you see, and I have long since come to comprehend that lovely is not the adjective most people would use to describe me. To be blunt, I am plain. Hair the color of a common field mouse. Eyes the same. Regular features. Average height. Clothes that attest rather frankly to my class and profession. I am so plain, in fact, that I am almost remarkably so. Having been in the police business for a couple of years now and knowing something about the nature of eyewitness reports, I am fairly confident that I could commit any number of crimes and get off scot-free simply by virtue of being utterly unmemorable to a witness. My plainness was a fact, and a fact of which I'm certain the lieutenant detective was well aware. And so, wounded that the lieutenant detective was willing to mock me in front of an entirely new addition to our office staff just to settle an old score, I shot him an acid look. But Odalie took my hand in hers and instantly smoothed the air of discord. Of course, Miss Baker, she purred with that quaint, rattling voice. We weren't introduced, but I remember you from last week. I admired the blouse you had on. I remember thinking what nice taste you must have. I looked at her. She was hypnotic. I felt myself strangely compelled to believe her compliment in spite of my acute awareness that none of the blouses I owned were particularly admirable. But then I thought of the brooch and questioned whether this might be a veiled reference to its disappearance. I felt an icy apprehension creep into my veins. I hesitated. The other typists call me Rose, I said finally. Rose, Odalie repeated. She managed somehow, by the tiniest trick of inflection, to make it sound more like the actual flower and less like the plain girl seated before her. Well, Rose, it's lovely to meet you. Before she could finish her sentence, the door that led to the precinct's little holding jail burst open and an elderly wino, ripe with body odor, swayed wildly into our midst. The lieutenant detective, I noticed, stepped ever so slightly closer to Odalie, as if to shield her. But contrary to everyone's expectations, she did not require shielding. The buzz of activity around the precinct fell quiet, and everyone looked on as Odalie composed herself and strode very calmly toward the escapee. Sir, she said in an unfazed, smooth purr while linking arms with the wino in a friendly manner, you seem to have slipped away from your accommodations, and I'm afraid the establishment isn't quite ready to part with your company. The wino, a man who was perhaps in his sixties and was dressed in a badly tattered brown suit, looked at the arm that had so smoothly looped itself through his own and, 
with the combination of extreme confusion and intense concentration that is unique to the very, very drunk, followed the arm's length up to its owner's face. What he saw there shocked him into an odd, docile sort of submission. Odalie moved as though to imply great deliberate care of his person, and, unaccustomed to such treatment, he was caught off guard. He allowed her to lead him back to the holding cell as naturally and happily as if she were leading him to a dance floor or to a next hole of golf. Once there, she let go of his arm, patted his shoulder, and gave him a wink. Meanwhile, two deputies quickly stepped in and locked him back up, safely behind bars. In spite of his re-imprisonment, the old man grinned at Odalie euphorically as she walked away and did not appear to regret having allowed himself to be tricked. When she re-emerged from the hall that led to the holding cell and returned to the main floor, the officers and other typists collectively held their breaths for a moment, and then suddenly the whole room erupted with applause. The audiobook of The Other Typist is out now, read by the actress Gretchen Mole, who plays Gillian Darmody in the hit US series Boardwalk Empire. Who do you think Kira Knightley will play? Rose Barker, the orphaned young woman working for her bread as a typist in the police precinct on the Lower East Side, or the captivating Odalie we've just met in this extract? We think she'd be great as either character. In this current age of films, it's not uncommon for an author to write the screenplay of their movie adaptation. We'll later find out how this has been the case for Jojo Moyes, but for some books it can take centuries, or to be more specific, 160 years, for a screenwriter to turn a classic, poignant and harrowing book into an award-winning screenplay. Twelve Years a Slave started off as a memoir written by Solomon Northup in 1853, describing his suffering of being sold into slavery. A book, and the subsequent film of this kind, reminds us that these tales of the darkest history of a nation and the cruelty of humankind should never remain untold or forgotten. Here is a clip from Steve McQueen's movie in which the white Canadian traveller Bass, played by Brad Pitt, takes temporary employment on the plantation and is shocked to receive preferential treatment from Master Epps, played by Michael Fassbender. No shame in taking respite from the heat. Drink, shade. It's ungodly for travellers, hardy or otherwise. And what's funny? Epps, I merely mean to finish the work at hand, as requested, and as paid for. Something rubs you wrongly, I offer you the opportunity to speak of it. Well, you ask plainly, so I will tell you plainly. What amused me just then was your concern for my well-being in this heat, when, quite frankly, the condition of your laborers. The condition of my laborers? It is horrid. The hell? It's all wrong. All wrong, Mr. Epps. They ain't hired help. They're my property. You say that with pride. I say it as fact. This conversation concerns what is factual and what is not. Then it must be said that there is no justice nor righteousness in this slavery. But you do open up an interesting question. I bought them. I paid for them. Suppose they pass a law taking away your liberty, making you a slave. Suppose. That ain't a supposable case. Laws change, Epps. Universal truths are constant. It is a fact. Plain and simple fact that what is true and right is true and right for all. White and black alike. That was a clip from the 2014 Academy Award winner for Best Motion Picture, 12 Years a Slave. The film tie-in edition of the book is available from Penguin Classics. We'll now take a look at the films to watch out for this year. First up, A Long Way Down by Nick Hornby, which will be out later this month. 
Starring Pierce Brosnan, Tony Collette and rising star Aaron Paul, it's the story of four people who inevitably help one another face the difficulties in their lives. We'll shortly listen to an interview of Imogen Poots, who plays 18-year-old Jess, but first here's an extract from the audiobook read by its own cast of readers, Nikki Henson, Pauline McLean, Beattie Edmondson and Christopher Ragland. In this extract, Martin, played by Nikki Henson, tells us why he came to the decision to jump off the top of a tower block. Can I explain why I wanted to jump off the top of a tower block? Of course I can explain why I wanted to jump off the top of a tower block. I'm not a bloody idiot. I can explain it because it wasn't inexplicable. It was a logical decision. The product of proper thought. It wasn't even a very serious thought either. I don't mean it was whimsical. I just meant that it wasn't terribly complicated or agonised. Put it this way. Say you were, I don't know, an assistant bank manager in Guildford. And you'd been thinking of emigrating. And then you were offered a job of managing a bank in Sydney. Well, even though it's a pretty straightforward decision, you'd still have to think for a bit, wouldn't you? You'd at least have to work out whether you could bear to move, whether you could leave your friends and colleagues behind, whether you could uproot your wife and kids. You might sit down with a bit of paper and draw up a list of pros and cons, you know. Cons, aged parents, friends, golf club. Pros, more money, better quality of life. House with pool, barbecue, etc. Sea, sunshine, no left-wing councils banning bar-bar black sheep. No EEC directives banning British sausages, etc. It's no contest, is it? The golf club? Now, give me a break. Obviously, your aged parents give you pause for thought, but that's all it is, a pause, and a brief one, too. You'd be on the phone to the travel agent within ten minutes. Well, that was me. There simply weren't enough regrets and lots and lots of reasons to jump. The only thing in my cons list were the kids, but I couldn't imagine Cindy letting me see them again anyway. I haven't got any aged parents, and I don't play golf. Suicide was my Sydney, and I say that with no offence to the good people of Sydney intended. And now an interview of Imogen Poots. What did you think of the book? I loved the book, and... um. It was interesting because the structure of the book is uh, actually written in diary form, so it focuses on the past, whereas the screenplay is um, linear and it's set present day, so um, it was wonderful to have the two as reference points for the film. Um, what did you think of Jess's character in the novel? I adored Jess's character. Um, there's a lot of uh, unexpected turns with her. That's partly because she um, contradicts herself so very much. Um, but I felt that there was obviously a lot of hair shirting herself and she had a lot of self-loathing and frustration. Um, and I find that that's quite, um, you know, it's a human um, trait. So I was excited to delve into the character. So is that a challenge to bring to life in the film? I think uh, the challenge with Jess was you consider to yourself, does this character have to be presented with possible redemption? And is this character a complete nightmare? And is it okay that there are moments where this character is actually unlikable? And I think that's when you consider kind of human nature and how close can we get to ourselves and how real can you be about um, our sort of emotions and we can sometimes be 
not very nice and capable of horrible things. So it was kind of embracing that with her, but still striving to show um, how she was suffering in her own way. So was she your favourite character in the novel? I think my favourite character in the novel is Pierce's character, Martin Sharp, just because he's purely a complete buffoon. And what was it like working with such a great cast? It was fantastic working with three of them, with Pierce and Tony and Aaron. Um, you very much become a family and a troupe, and the chemistry on screen is mimicked off camera too. Um, but often working with actors of their calibre, you hope that you know your performance is elevated just because of uh, the company of such um, brilliant talent and good people. Have you read any of Nick's other novels? And if so, have you got a favourite? Um, I'd say A Long Way Down is the one that's weirdly the most uh, prominent in my mind. But um, About a Boy, the movie of About a Boy was something that um, I remember very clearly watching when I was younger and that kind of stuck with me. And what are you reading at the moment? These well, it was one specific essay by Andy Warhol called America, and it's um, combined with uh, photographs that he took at the time. Um, and it's a really fantastic piece of writing and prose. It's very much kind of his philosophy, and I loved reading it. It's completely lugubrious, um, but also just to kind of give you context from that time, it was just a really, really fascinating read, so I whipped through it. And have you got a book that you'd like to see adapted as a film? Um, I'd say... In my mind, I'd always love to see something like Donna Tartt's Secret History or um, Salinger's um, Fanny and Zoe, but then actually you have trepidation about Salinger because that, you know, somebody tried to do that once and it just didn't work out. So, But I, I'd love to see Secret History. That would be amazing. If you could play any character from literature, who would that be? It would probably be um, Franny, Salinger's um, Franny, or um, I think F. Scott Fitzgerald and his short stories uh, creates incredible female roles um, and uh, there's a kind of a thrilling aspect to them and I mean that in terms of like the genre of like a thriller there's something um, kind of off kilter and demonic sometimes about his women which I love. And if you really did see an angel would it look like Matt Damon? If I saw an angel I don't think it would look like Matt Damon I think it would just have glitter and fairy dust and wings and be um, like a six-year-old's angel that was Imogen Poots talking about starring in the adaptation of Nick Hornby's book A Long Way Down and the audiobook edition is available now to download from iTunes Finally, from books about to arrive on the big screen to books making their journey to film stardom Jojo Moyes, international best-selling author of The Girl You Left Behind and The One Plus One is in the process of adapting her novel Me Before You into a film script here she is talking about how Me Before You was picked up by movie producers and who she wouldn't mind playing the male lead role. The last year has been the best year of my professional life. Um, when I went to MGM Studios, um, the offices of MGM Studios, to meet the head of MGM to discuss turning Me Before You into a movie, and he ended the meeting by saying, Jojo, let's make a movie. <laughs> I think that's kind of every writer's dream. But I can't tell you much about Me Before You, the movie, yet. Um, I, for example, I can't tell you anything about casting, which is what everybody wants to know. But I can tell you that um, the script is 
in its final stages, that there is a producer, a very good producer on board, the studio is giving it its full backing. So as far as these things are ever sure, it's as sure as anything I've ever done. Um, I can't say who I would like to play Will because every time someone makes a good suggestion, um, I change my mind. Uh, but uh, three people who've been mooted who I like the sound of are Ryan Gosling, Michael Fassbender and Channing Tatum. I think I'd be very happy with any of those. That was Jojo Moyes talking about her book, Me Before You, being made into a film. But if you can't wait to see the story, why not read it first in paperback or ebook, along with her other romantic and irresistible stories? And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to the Penguin Podcast.